there in Hebrews 10, 26 through 39. We're going to study this rather like a play in two acts. Although if we were at the theater, a two act play has a rather long intermission that allows for the changing of complex sets and the chance for the audience to discuss the first act together. And usually the first act of the play is lighthearted and straightforward compared to the second. However, this one is going to be quite different. The first act is going to have a lot more drama than the first act. We're going to read the opening part of the passage and discuss it, and then we're going to read the concluding section and then talk about it. To remind us of the context, last week Pastor Danielle brought a good word about one of the most encouraging portions in the book of Hebrews. We again entered into the throne room of Jesus, whose blood makes our approach possible, and we were encouraged to hold fast to the confession of hope. Nikki read it again for us this morning in our call to worship. And we're able to hold fast to the hope because God is faithful. And then they said, don't, don't neglect meeting together. Don't neglect meeting together. But we should keep encouraging one another to meet. And even more as we see the day of Jesus' return come closer. And this makes us wonder, who can we encourage to come and worship the Lord? How do we need to be encouraged when we just want to stay home in our pajamas? I know we're all laughing, right? In our passage today, the author continues to appeal to the audience so they would not lose their confidence. The sacrifice of Jesus always makes it possible for us to enter into God's holy presence, but still, still people resist. Still, they want to turn away and reduce the church to so much less than it is meant to be. There are people who have trusted Jesus who have gone on their own path. And in this passage, there are two ways that the author is calling those people back. First with a warning and then with an encouragement to see the consequences of turning aside and then to see the blessings of enduring in the Lord. So let us look at Act 1 with verses 26 through 31 and notice how the author includes themselves in the conversation here. For if we willfully persist in sin after having received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. But a fearful prospect of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has violated the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of one or two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by those who have spurned the Son of God, profaned the blood of the covenant by which they were sanctified, and outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know the one who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God." Now, these words are a serious notice of impending danger that is always around the church. And as such, I want to begin with a story with permission and also from my memory that some of you may recall. About eight or nine years ago, we went down to the beach on Pentecost Sunday for our baptism. This is our practice as church tradition encourages believers to find a living body of water for this important sacrament. Since we have the largest body of water in the world right here, it works out well. 
On this day, there was a sign that the beach was closed because there had been a shark sighting. There we all were in our suits and our towels, having sung the songs and heard amazing testimonies of God's grace, as well as commitments of those who were taking this next important step of their faith, and we were stopped. So we all just stood there for a minute, wondering what pool we might look for, we might be calling the Huertas, when Pastor Denny said, oh, I think it will be fine. (laughs) Remember I told you I had permission. The ocean has danger, and we were only going to be there for a few minutes in shallow water. So he asked if it was okay, if we were okay with, you know, all of us going in. My memory is that everyone said yes, although there might have been a few that stayed on the beach. And as we were walking down towards the water, a lifeguard came frantically running up to us and waving his hands and saying that the beach was closed. Like, kind of what's wrong with you people? Can't you read? The beach is closed uh, because of a shark. And in a moment I will never forget, Pastor Denny, our intrepid leader, said, did you yourself see the shark? (laughs) Man, I learned so much that day. And the lifeguard said, "Uh, no, I hadn't. And Denny said, well, we're here to baptize these people and it will be quick. And Uh, we tramped down to the water for one of the most memorable sacraments we had ever experienced. Now, there are lots of spiritual applications that we could take from this, and I encourage you to go home and take some spiritual applications from this. But I want to pose a question from it today from our uh, scripture is this. What do you do with the warnings in your life? How do you respond to them? Maybe it matters where the warnings are coming from or who says them. In my lifetime, the amount of precautions for everything has increased. And there are reasons for that, some helpful and some I think ridiculous. But there are some real things we have to be worried about in life. There are high-risk behaviors that will truly harm us or seriously change our lives if we don't pay attention And we all deal with warnings in various ways, depending on a complex number of factors, including our values and our personality and what we can see in our past experiences. Sometimes we just ignore warnings. Or sometimes we hear them and think, well, that doesn't really apply to me. Or we get fearful and allow them to paralyze our decisions. We might laugh about them in a way that acknowledges the danger, but we still want to have fun while we can. Sometimes we put that worry about danger on other people. We might intellectualize warning signs, finding a way to put our mind over the matter before us. Or we might try to figure it out in a healthy way and try to move forward with wisdom. Obviously, we have all been in a situation this year where we have been living with the warnings of COVID danger all around us. And we have seen the reactions that I highlighted, including sometimes a condemnation that can be expressed when someone thinks their decision is best and they have no grace for how other people do it. And it's painful, especially in the church, to see how sometimes people are choosing to be divided about the warnings related to the virus. And then sometimes I pray and I think, when what is temporary is no longer a threat, how will our relationships look? How will our witness for Christ, which is permanent, suffer because of some of the ways that we have treated one another, pointing fingers and seeing others as the enemy because of the choices they have made? 
But what about the warnings like this very serious one found in scripture? I think that we respond to biblical warnings in all of the same ways we respond to earthly ones, truthfully. But we have to pay attention because there is an authority behind biblical mandates. To whom or to what do we give power to influence us in eternal matters? Who has the right to tell us what to do? Are the scriptures authoritative in our lives? Do we take time to listen and to be teachable to the Holy Spirit, heeding the warnings we see as consistent from God throughout scripture? Do we, as Jesus says, have the ears to hear what he is saying to us? The writer of Hebrews is calling out a painful reality for those who ignore God and reject the sacrifice of Jesus. Yet this warning is not like the one we had on the beach. That was a potential threat of danger that could occur any day. This is a reality of something that absolutely will happen if the warning is not heeded. The scripture says there can be no forgiveness for those who know the truth of Jesus but turn away. It's impossible for someone to give us something if we won't take it. If we tell them absolutely no thank you, if we hide or we are far gone when they show up to give it to us, if we reject the sacrifice of Jesus, the writer says, then that sacrifice can't cleanse us. And then there's the warning. The fate of those who walk away from God's abundant love is rough. Fearful judgment, fury of consuming fire, death without mercy. The early church took the sin of apostasy very seriously. This is a big word that means one of two things. One, believers turning to heretical or false teachings that claim to be true Christian doctrine but are not, and renouncing or abandoning faith in Jesus altogether. And this writer has been making the case over and over again that the sacrifice of Jesus is complete for us. It's a grace-filled provision for our sin. They say the, those who disregarded the law of Moses were sentenced to death, but all of eternity is on the table now. How much worse, the writer asks, do you think it's going to be for those who reject the Son of the Most High God? Where else can we turn if we reject what Jesus died to give us? The key word here is willfully. This is about those who know the truth of God but deliberately rebel anyway. And there are two main actions of apostasy here. One, spurning God's son. It's a great word, isn't it? Spurning. That means to trample underfoot or to treat someone with rudeness and total disdain. Secondly, profaning the blood of Christ, which means to consider the blood as common, as of no consequence, as if it didn't matter. Together, these two things lead to grieving God's spirit. God's spirit who is outraged by those who try to push Christ away, who try to make him less than God. We think about the scribes who tried to say that Jesus was from the devil so they could keep their own position and power. And then I pray, Lord, may the scales fall off our eyes today for those who live only for themselves but yet claim to follow Christ. 
We must be discerning and be on the watch for wolves who would come in sheep's clothing, who would manipulate for more power for their own agenda. Because whoever sets themselves up against the Lord will find themselves on a crash course of destruction. The last two sentences here in verse 30 are quotes from the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32. At the end of his life, Moses gave a warning to the people by reminding them what will happen if they turn their backs on their covenant with God. The Lord says that vengeance belongs to him and that he will repay and judge all people. And the last sentence is chilling. I've been thinking about it all week. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We don't think of God as our adversary, but that is what we make him if we turn from him. And while we hate this idea, the gospel has little meaning if we are not saved from anything. So how do you hear this warning? This is the kind of passage we have to wrestle with as we consider what the warning means for us and how it is that we allow it to challenge us or how it fits into our theological underpinnings. Whatever we feel about it, what will we do about it? Will this warning serve to push us to warn others as the writer here is doing? Will we push past it like it doesn't matter, choosing to only focus on the scriptures that we agree with? The seriousness of this should give us pause, and I exhort us to see this with the eyes of the Lord. The second act is verses 32 through 39, where the writer addresses the audience without adding themselves in. This is an encouragement to live as people of faith. But recall those earlier days when after you had been enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings sometimes being publicly exposed to abuse and persecution, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion for those who were in prison, and you cheerfully accepted the plundering of your possessions, knowing that you yourselves possessed something better and more lasting. Do not therefore abandon that confidence of yours. It brings a great reward, for you need endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, the one who is coming will come and will not delay, but my righteous one will live by faith. My soul takes no pleasure in anyone who shrinks back. But we are not among those who shrink back and so are lost, but among those who have faith and who are saved. Here we see more of what the church had endured in the hard struggle of what they went through when they first decided to follow Jesus. It says their possessions were taken. They were publicly mocked and persecuted. They witnessed their teammates in the gospel being treated terribly and imprisoned. And it sounds like those experiences deepened their fellowship and spurred their compassion. More importantly, because they were enlightened by Christ, this persecution gave them confidence in the Lord's presence among them. This is one key way that we have seen over history that the church always grows. Because under true oppression, everything becomes more clear. Those who choose Christ will often boldly make him known when they are told they are no longer allowed to do so. 
There is a newfound courage that comes when everything is stripped away except for the Lord. Our writer here is telling the church to remember how they held fast to the faith when they were young, when the threat was coming from the outside. How much good came from that, they're saying, when they trusted Christ. And now there is a threat coming from the inside of them, from the inside of their souls. And they need resilience in the face of this different kind of adversity. God all the time calls us to remember. Remember my faithfulness. Remember my actions. Remember how I showed up for you. It is recalling the past that God's faithfulness can be seen more clearly. Now, a lot of this idea here hinges on being enlightened with Christ, who helps us to see a light that is not of our own making. He is the one who gives us insight into his scripture. Jesus shines a light on our hearts to show us who we really are. He is a lamp on the dark path to guide our way so we can follow him. He asks us to bring his light into the suffering around us, to the poor and to the poor in spirit, with genuine compassion and grace. His illuminating presence enables us to daily grow into his likeness. But there is an idea here that the people are tired, that they're tired of waiting for the Lord. Can I get an amen? Yeah. In their persecution, they had prayed and hoped for Jesus' return. And maybe the reward of living with God forever seemed too far away or something they just didn't think that they would see. And that's why verses 37 and 38 are good ones for us to know. These two quotes together um, are from Isaiah and Habakkuk. And the common link between them is how they both refer to the coming of the Lord. Isaiah 26, from which the first part of ta- is taken, is a song of praise for how the Lord is coming soon to vindicate his people and punish the wicked. In Habakkuk, this is part of the prophecy from the 7th century. After the prophet was agonizing, Habakkuk was agonizing over the godlessness that he saw, the rebellion that was all around him. And he cries out to the Lord, Lord, how much longer? And the Lord tells Habakkuk to be patient. God says, my righteous ones will live by faith. My soul takes no pleasure in anyone who shrinks back. This is a good word for us today because we are worn out. And yet still we wait in hope for the Lord's return. We are eager for our lives to begin again in earnest as the spiritual battle rages in and around the church, as we are ravaged and those we love by cancer, by hate and by shootings and division at every level of society. And we can't understand why inequality continues And there's brokenness and uncertainty all around us. And in all of those things, we long for a different world. We long for Jesus to come and to take us with him. And the Lord says, I know. I understand. Keep putting your faith in me. However much we are tempted, this is not the time to shrink back. It's time to take the good opportunities that we have in our generation through the pain all around us and expand our efforts into 
glorifying God and making him known. Because if we as Christians who have the light of Christ feel the weight of oppression and feel the weight of darkness, imagine those who don't know him, how they must feel. Where do we need to bring God's hope and light? So at the end of our play, we have a choice before us. We can choose to exercise our covenant with Christ in such a way that our lives continue to reflect his presence in the world, that we would lean into what he has for us as the days get more difficult and dangerous, or we can step back and only focus on our own concerns, our own affairs, or what we think is of prime importance here. I know it's not easy to stay vigilant and remain faithful, but that is what Jesus asks his people to do. We possess something greater and more lasting in Christ than anything we find or experience here. So today, may we hear the Lord's voice in this passage, showing us the true warnings we must heed and the impetus to be faithful as he encourages us to exercise our faith and hope in him. What confidence can you find in this scripture today? Let us pray. Thank you for listening. If you would like to learn more about the Free Methodist Church of Santa Barbara, you can visit us online at fmcsb.org. We pray this message has been a blessing to you.